Well, it's time to uh, dig into God's Word. Thank you, worship team. That song actually tying together Old Testament with Christ will feed into the sermon. So I was encouraged when I kind of went round one first hour with that. And uh, it's, it's either all about Christ or it's not about Christ at all, right? Jesus is either the King of Kings or he's not a king at all. It's all really true or it's not true at all. And guess what? It's all true. It's all true. And we have the real and true Jesus. It's so important for us to know that. Um, I think that the Lord is definitely equipping us as his church to be strong and stronger during the times we're living in. And they're not... Um, Nearly as bad as they could be, but the Bible predicts that things will go from bad to worse. And so as things get harder, we have to be stronger and we have to believe more and more convictionally than ever before. I'm very thankful for uh, Grace Christian School and the education ministry that goes on continually. I'm thankful for Christian moms and dads who homeschool at home and, and, and pour the Word of God and invest the Word of God in the lives of kids. I'm thankful for um, families that do that, whether they homeschool or have other education um, means. But educating the younger generation is so important. Um, I think of the Awana ministry, the children's ministry, um, and even our adult equipping ministries, Bible studies, so important to know why we believe what we believe and that it's true and that Jesus is genuinely king, that the little baby that came 2,000 years ago is our king. He is. And this passion for educating is something that has been percolating and, and part of our um, life dynamic here for 40 plus years. And uh, it's, a, it's a passion that reminds me of what we do here to what people have done before us. And one person I was uh, thinking about this week because a friend of mine told me, he said, you know, one of the persons that impacted his life more than anybody else in terms of his Christian development, was Francis Schaeffer. And Schaeffer had a passion like we do up here with, for Christian education. He did as well. He was, uh, I was looking up some statistics. He was born January 30th, 1912, Germantown, Pennsylvania. He graduated from uh, magna cum laude from Hamden Sydney College in 1935. I know that school. It's in Virginia because I went to a wrestling camp there and um, messed up my knee. That's my... Uh, favorite memory from uh, wrestling, but it was there, and that school was born out of Christian education, like a lot of Ivy League schools. They were born to train people and train ministers. Well, Schaefer was ed educated there. His wife, Edith, he met um, during that time frame, and she was a daughter, uh, um, a missionary kid, and a daughter of parents who had joined the China Inland Mission. Schaefer, uh, he enrolled and uh, went to Westminster Theological Seminary, and he learned presuppositional apologetics. In other words, that everything that you believe in terms of defending the faith is presupposed in terms of the Bible being true. So he believed in the sufficiency, the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture, that it's real, that it's true, and that any question about life, any question about the world, any question about anything that's going on, all the different political, socioeconomical, racial, pandemic, all those issues today, just like back when, when he was um, answering questions in the 50s and the 60s, he took everything to Scripture, everything. And that's, that was his passion. And that's where educating comes from, from that kind of passionate um, thinking. He, he created um, a ministry, as many of you know, in Switzerland, 
He moved there in 1948 after doing a few pastorates. He was a Presbyterian pastor. He went to uh, to Switzerland. And by 1955, he had established a community called Labrie, which is French for the shelter. And this was a place that thousands of uh, kids, teenagers, and and especially young adults, college-age kids, would come and they would flock there to to think about God and think about the world and sort of go to a remote place and part of the educating ministry was they they were given jobs and they would work the kind of the community and then they would come together after supper and they would gather around in the living room and ask Francis Schaeffer anything he said I'm I'm entertaining all questions about anything about life anything about the world and I will bring it all to scripture Now, that's important because it's this principle. The Bible is either sufficient to answer everything for life and godliness, everything in terms of the world, or it's not sufficient at all. It's either all the way relevant or it's all the way irrelevant. Jesus is all the way God and Lord and King, or he's not God and Lord and King at all. It's one or the other. And I titled today's sermon, either King over all or King not at all. That's where we are this morning. That's where I think God has brought me in my, my mind and, and my thinking. And I want to, um, I'm inviting you to turn to Matthew 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount series, but I'm going to tie it back to, uh, to Christ's birth and you'll see it. But Matthew 5, start at verse 17. I want to show you something here. It says, Jesus preaching, first sermon ever. Here we go. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. This is verse 17. I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But to fulfill them. Uh, Jesus is taking the Pharisees to task here. They're listening into the sermon. He's got them gathered up on the, the hilltop or the, you know, on the, the flat part of the mountain. And he's talking to his disciples, but Pharisees are there to attack. There's always wolves with the sheep. There's always, you know, the goats and the tares, and they're trying to ensnare people and keep their stake in the ground in people's hearts in terms of legalism. They're trying to bind people up and make the law of the prophets, which is the law is a synonym for all of Scripture. Really, the New Testament is also Scripture and says all Scripture is profitable. So what the Pharisees are doing is they're taking the Old Testament law and saying it's rules. It's rules and you need to keep them. These are laws and they need to be obeyed. These are commentaries on these laws and they need to be obeyed on the authority of God. That's what makes you right. That's their religion. Jesus is saying this is either a law-keeping religion or this is a this is either rule keeping or it's revelation it's either keeping laws or it's light this is either something you do or something that through reading it you see you're either a doer or a seer you're someone who either um, is is just bound up in a religion of law keeping and trying to climb your way to heaven in your own strength in your own muscle power, in your own willpower, or you're someone who goes, blessed are the poor in spirit. I can't do it. I know I can't do it. The law has shown me I can't do it, and the law has opened my heart to see the one who did do it. The law is either a rule book or it is revelation. It's revelation, and it is, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's drawing a line in the sand to say, I didn't come to abolish, I didn't come to send the law away, I came to fulfill the law, to show that it was all about me. 
Last week we um, talked about the bewitching spell of legalism and Jesus said that he fulfilled the law and, and, and how did he fulfill it? Well, last week we talked about how he fulfilled it morally. He did everything right. He was obedient to the law. He couldn't sin. He didn't go against God's will or God's word at any one point. He obeyed it civilly. He did all of the things that, that an Israelite was supposed to follow and obey. And he did it ceremonially as the Lamb of God. He is the perfect Lamb sacrifice. And he's the picture fulfilled in the cross of Christ for all the lambs that, that were killed on behalf of sin, he's the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. So he did all of that. But there's another sense in which Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He didn't just obey it. He didn't just follow it. He is the point of all of the scripture. All of scripture is all about Jesus. It's all to show us that Jesus is real and he really is the fulfillment of it. And this word fulfill is a fascinating word. It's the word pleroma. It's the same word in Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine, but what? Be filled in the Holy Spirit. To be all the way filled in the Spirit. Well, Jesus is all the way the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament and really all of the New Testament. He's the centerpiece of it all. Let me show you this. Start back in Matthew chapter 1. Let's get a running start back to, um, we'll, we'll end up back in Matthew 5. But Matthew 1 it says the book of the genealogy, verse 1. That's genomai, it's beginnings. Um, the beginnings all center on Jesus. What does that mean? Jesus, the son of David. So he is the rightful king. This is what Matthew wants to prove. He is the king. He is the Messiah. And he's the son of Abraham. So, so he goes to David in the line. And then he goes all the way back to Abraham. Abraham, the father of faith. The progenitor of Israel, but what, the one who, for whom God gave the covenant promise that through him, through his example of faith and through his loins, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, through, through Israel's gospel witness, people will believe and the nations will believe and this will be fulfilled in the Great Commission and the church. All of this is centered on Jesus and what he did to make this possible. Verse 5. And Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And then you have, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Who's that? That's Bathsheba. And so you have Jesus who's, who's being traced through the kings of Israel. And, and even these Interesting Gentiles that are interlaced in there with Rahab and her sin that reflects God's grace in her life. And then the divine providence of Ruth and Boaz and how that leads to, to, you know, through the line of Jesse to the birth of David, who is the king of Israel, who's the, the forerunner of Christ and David, who would give birth to or who would um, marry Bathsheba and, and Bathsheba give birth to Solomon. It's amazing. To see that Jesus came in this way. If you go to verse 16 of chapter 1. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So through the, 
the husband line of Joseph and through the bloodline of Mary, the king's curse of the Israelites is answered and Jesus is vindicated as the true legal king of Israel and also the true king through the bloodline of Mary as the king of kings and Lord of lords. He's the only one who could fulfill these prophecies and the only one that could be Christ. Our Messiah. Now, if you look down into the narrative of Jesus' birth, and this is sort of the Christmas Sunday sermon, so it's good for us to be here. Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just man and unwilling to, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Didn't want to shame her. They were betrothed. They were legally bound for marriage. But he was going to put her away, not understanding how she had conceived. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is Yeshua. It's um, taken from the Hebrew word Joshua, means savior. Jesus was always coming to save his people from their sins, verse 21. Look at verse 22. Here's this word. All this took place, all of this, the genealogical build to Jesus coming and then the narrative of Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit born of a virgin, all this took place to fulfill. There's that word plurao, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Which prophet? Here it's Isaiah 7, it's Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 7, 14, and Isaiah 8, 8, and verse 10, um, spliced together. It says, all this took place, verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's not, Isaiah wasn't specifically talking about Mary, but this is applied to Mary. And then it says, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is applied to Jesus. Now, later you know that the wise men came to visit the magi, the magicians, the wizards who were Gentiles, who were the first sort of sightings of Gentile converts who are believing in Jesus and they're, they're putting together fragments of Old Testament with this appearance of a star and they're led to Judea and they're stirring the place up, it says. In verse two, it says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. We've come to worship him. Herod, who's Herod the Great, who's terrifying. He's troubled and he's and all of Jerusalem is troubled by this because they're wondering what Herod's going to do. He's got a hair trigger and he would slaughter anyone who would compete for his throne. And so he knew this Messiah was a threat. So he was inquiring of his scholars, his chief priests, verse four, bring him together. Where's Christ going to be born? And he's, he's, he's devising a plan to slaughter the Christ. But here you have what I read earlier. The prophecy is, is here and it's the idea of fulfilling a prophecy in Jesus. This is, and you, verse six, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Here, Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2 are, are brought together to show exactly where Jesus was going to be born. And so the star hovers over Bethlehem. The wise men go there. 
And then in verse 13, you see that after the wise men worshipped and Herod was going to come and he was going to slaughter Jesus, an angel warns Joseph to take Jesus out of the line of fire. It says, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And then verse 15, it says, and they remained there until the death of Herod. So they went to Egypt. They remained there till the death of Herod. This was to, here's this word, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken out of Egypt, I called my son. Now this phrase, this is taken from Hosea 11.1. 1. This again shows that whether we're talking about the book of Micah, 2 Samuel, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 8, Hosea 11. These are a collection that Matthew is making the case that this is Jesus. It was all about him. Israel was the one that was in Egypt that was that was wrested out of out from under bondage that that pictures what Jesus can do for you you're in bondage and you can be taken out of sin's bondage they were set free and Jesus is a symbol of being set free where he went down to Egypt and he's the savior who's come back all of these things are tied together and then Herod goes down he slaughters Every child in Bethlehem, which was probably about 20 or 30 of them who were under the age of two, verse 16 says, and this, and then was fulfilled what was spoken for the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is uh, Ramah, which um, speaks back in the Old Testament time, 586 BC. We talked about it, Babylonian captivity, where the Babylonians came. That's, by the way, where the wise men would later come from. But the Babylonians at that point are enemies, and they they captured Israelites. And in Ramah, which is north northeast of, of where Bethlehem would have been, but not too far from there, maybe seven miles away from there, there was a, a holding camp, you know, like a... Like a, like a, they were taking the Jews that were going to be deported, like a deported, deporting station and a holding camp where they were going to be sent to Babylonian captivity. And while they were there, Jeremiah is, um, is prophesying over this and the sadness at Ramah where Rachel is weeping for her children. Rachel, who had died, you know, earlier is a picture of like a mother figure of the Israelites who's buried there in Ramah. And it's the picture of her weeping over these Israelites that are going to be shipped away. And that is fulfilled when Herod slaughtered these babies and there's weeping that's inconsolable. All of this is tying together to the storyline of Christ. Well, again, then when Joseph um, is told that he can take Jesus back into Judea, verse 19, it says, Herod died, that's Herod the Great. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in the dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and the mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life is dead. Archelaus, though, he finds out is the ruler there in that area. So Joseph's afraid to go there and he ends up going to Galilee. Well, why did he go to Galilee? Look at verse 23 of chapter two and he went and lived in the city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets, not in specific, but in a lot of different 
prophecies, it says the Messiah is going to come from Nazareth. It, that it might be, there's the word, fulfill, plurao, that he would be called a Nazarene. All of this had to be fulfilled. Jesus is the prophetic fulfillment of all these things. John the Baptist, chapter 3, verse 3, he's a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make, make his path straight. This is Isaiah 40, verse 3, in the context of the Babylonians hurting and slaughtering and, and destroying Israelites. And within that persecution and that pressure, there's this prophecy that, that John the Baptist is, is tied to here. And he's saying, make straight the path because the Messiah is coming. It's just on and on and on it goes. When, when Jesus was um, coming out as a um, as an adult now, and, and he was showing himself to the masses to begin his ministry, he was willing to be baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist was this prophet, and he's calling people to righteousness. He's calling people to true repentance. He's saying, leave false religion, leave legalism, come out. And Jesus says, I will come out as an example here, and I too will be baptized. John is confused by that, and Jesus says, permit it now that we may fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I'm the Savior. I'm the means for this repentance that people are experiencing. He's the point of it all. I know that this is a lot to sort of ingest, but I'm just making the point that it's all about Jesus. Matthew makes this point, Matthew 4. And then you go to verse 12 where Jesus begins his ministry. John the Baptist had been arrested, verse 12. And then Jesus withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth. So he goes a few miles south to Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, where he begins his ministry in Capernaum by the sea. And what is he fulfilling here? Well, again, as we just sang, Isaiah's light. Isaiah was a prophet that not only consoled and warned the Israelites, but he also showed that the whole point of the nation of Israel was to be a light to the nation of the Gentiles. So Jesus was specifically planted in an area called the Galilee of the Gentiles. And you see this in verse 15, it, verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So he goes up to Nazareth, that fulfills prophecy. Then he goes down to Galilee, that's fulfilling prophecy. Why? Because he's in the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is all prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Fulfillment, fulfillment, fulfillment. Jesus is fulfilling it all. So, what's the point? How does this apply? It's a good Bible study, right? It's good to connect prophecies and go, okay, Jesus really is the point, whether you're talking from Hosea or Micah or Isaiah or 2 Samuel. All of these things are tied together and is all about Jesus. I come back to this one main point. You either read the Bible as a rule book that will stifle you, that will suffocate you, that will terrify you, that will terrorize you, that will expose you, or you read it as a rule book that will puff you up with pride, 
make you feel better than somebody else, make you think you know more, right, knowledge that puffs up, make you think that you're able to make yourself right with God, make you think that, you know, your scholarship is going to get you to heaven. Either one of those traps are spiritual death traps to be avoided. So you either view this as a do-gooding rule book or you view this as revelation that shows us Jesus. It's one or the other. Christianity is that binary. It is one or the other. It's either all about Jesus, all true, and all about his righteousness, or it is all about us, all about what we can do and our righteousness. And so Jesus wants to lay that out and make that very clear. And I think Matthew wants to make that point very clear where he's proving that Jesus is king. He's the only one that could fulfill these promises to fulfill, to fulfill. He fulfilled. He's the only one. But in his fulfillment, he wants to break the spell of legalism in the lives of his hearers. He's propping up the Pharisees' false religion so that he can knock it down. He's propping it up like a straw man so he can knock it down and free you. So important to be freed from legalism. Galatians 3, remember we talked about it last week. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Did you, verse 2, receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? wants to rest people from this satanic lie. And I bring this up, and I brought it up last week around Christmas time, the ceremonialism of Christmas where people come because it's Christmas, where people come to a Christmas Eve service to try to make themselves right with God, trying to read enough Bible, trying to show enough good faith and connection to God to, to kind of keep them good so that then they can spiral and digress the rest of the year. That is a false religion. That is a wrong-headed um, path to take. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one that sets us free from this. So if you're taking notes, this is breaking the spell of legalism by answering two questions. One, how Jesus relates to the law. We talked about that last week. He fulfilled the, the moral, civil, and ceremonial aspects of the law. He fulfilled it prophetically. I've kind of made that point again and then point to how you are supposed to relate to the law. The first point is who you do not want to be who you do not want to be this is a very important point um, to make for christian growth who do you not want to be this begins at verse 19 of chapter 5 it says therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven now again Jesus is attacking Phariseeism. He's calling it out. And Phariseeism is not something that is just way bygone and unrelatable. Every false teaching, every cult, every false religion will be the, the works-based religion that is the Pharisees. It is. It, it just, it, you just need to realize that. Mormonism is Phariseeism. Um, Jehovah's Witness, it's Phariseeism. And, and there are other many subtle realities that are out there that are trying to get you to earn your way to heaven or to have your good outweigh your bad instead of relying on Christ. As Jesus has said he's, he fulfills the law 
And, he, and not one iota and not one dot, verse 18, of the law will pass away. It, is, it will all be accomplished. But how will it be accomplished? Well, look what the Pharisees are brought up against in verse 19. It says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Relaxing. That's the word um, luo, which can mean to destroy or to loosen. And I think that the interpretation is correct here. I think Jesus is is trying to shock people out of their legalism. Relaxing here. It's like, it's like whoever makes the law like silly putty. Whoever, whoever loosens it. Whoever takes it down from what it's really meant to be and do. Now, ironically, when you think of legalism, you don't think of relaxing, do you? The Pharisees are promoting rigidity and law keeping and keep these laws and keep these extra laws to make yourself right with God. And Jesus is saying, That version of religion is actually relaxing the intent of the law instead of the true purpose of the law. The law or the word of God is either a book for do-gooding and trying to make yourself right with God or it is revelation and it's showing you Jesus. And so to relax or loosen it is what he's saying that the legalists are actually doing. He's saying that if you make the Bible a book that's a moral code to be followed, this is death. This is wrong. It it ties heavy burdens up on people's backs. The Pharisees, the word Pharisee means separatist. And in Luke 18, you remember the story of um, the, the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. The Pharisee walks in and what he actually is doing is he's making himself right with God by saying, I'm better than this guy. I know you've never done that before, but this is what a Pharisee does. And I'm being sarcastic here because we all are tempted to do this. Say, you know what? I haven't done these certain things. I'm not as bad as that person. I've been in church more than that person has. I've read my Bible more than that person has. So I might not be as good as I think I want to be. And I might not even think I've made it to the point where God is smiling on my life. But at least I'm not that guy. So God will take me instead of that guy. You know, it's the old joke about how do you survive a bear attack? You outrun the person, you know, behind you. <laughs> well, that's, that's what this is talking about. It's the Pharisee who's, who's saying in Luke 18, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners. I've never done that. Unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I haven't done those things. My scorecard is good compared to that person. That's do-gooding. That is false religion. That's false teaching. If I read my Bible long enough, then I'll make myself feel like I'm better off than I was before. Well, guess what? If you don't read your Bible by faith, it's actually doing damage for you to read your Bible in a law-keeping, do-gooding, pharisaical path. It actually will harden your heart instead of softening your heart. Do you see? And so that's what... That's what this Pharisee is doing. He's saying, verse 12 of Luke 18, I fast twice a week. Well, it was required of the law only to fast, take a, a day of fasting for a, you know, once a semester. He's saying, I don't just do it once a semester. I do it twice a week. I'm good. I'm right with God. Jesus in Matthew 23, 22 and 23, rebuked the Pharisees. And in chapter 23, verse 23, he indicts the Pharisees of neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Well, a Pharisee who's a, you know, trying to do more and more, that's terrifying. He's going, what? I thought I've gone as deep and as heavy as I can in the law in terms of law keeping. 
And he's saying you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. You know what the weightier matters of the law are? According to Jesus in verse 23, justice and mercy and faithfulness. What's the law supposed to do? It's supposed to lead us to Christ. The law locates Christ. The law is supposed to show us that we can't keep the law in our own strength. The law is is supposed to be a tutor that shows us and drives us to Christ because we've got nowhere else to go. It exposes our sin. It exposes our inability to make ourselves right with God. And then the law of the Lord reveals that Jesus is the answer and that our hearts can change and he can soften us to have a heart of justice and mercy and faithfulness. That's what the law does. Relaxing the law with hypocrisy and do-gooding, that's relaxing the law. That's taking the law to a silly putty standard. (laughs) The law is instead the word of God that reveals God to us and shows us how to find life. That's that's my Christian experience. I love the Lord more when I'm, when I'm arrested by God's word in worship or arrested by God's word and approached in the light of Jesus as I study the word of God and I see grace and I see the comfort of the Holy Spirit as he is affirming promises to my own heart that it's true and real. That's when I'm alive spiritually. So who you don't want to be, let's just go back to our outline, verse 19. You don't want to be someone who's relaxing the law, being a hypocrite and a do-gooder, um, and, and someone who teaches other people to live that way. It's one of the least of these commandments who's relaxing even the smallest bit of the law and then teaches other, others to do the same. They'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, this is who you want to be. You want to be a doer of the word who teaches people to follow the word because they love Christ. Um, Of them, they'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be somebody who binds people's consciences. Don't be people who, who approach the Bible in terms of right and wrong and do's and don'ts. Be someone who promotes God's word where you are a doer of the word of God by faith because you love Jesus. And you know he's the king of kings. You know he's the answer for your life. This is who you want to be. Think about David's testimony in Psalm 51, verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Did the law require him to offer sacrifices? Absolutely. He was still supposed to do that. He was still supposed to give a sacrifice. He says you would not be pleased with a burnt offering. You're supposed to still burn offerings in this context with David? Yes, you're still supposed to do that. But he said, the, the, the issue is the doing is, is still supposed to be done, but underneath the doing, the true sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. That's the heart God will not despise. It's like in the issue of giving. If you don't want to give, um, you know, when we used to pass the offering plate or, you know, you don't want to give online or whatever, if your heart is hardening up and you're fearful, then a lot of people will say, well, I'm not going to give until my heart is right with God. So you're supposed to stop giving? No. What you do is you repent of not wanting to give. You repent of that sin and you see that God will provide your needs. And in that repentance, you, you become a doer of the word. I'm not saying that God doesn't give us commands. He gives us commands to follow. But he's desiring your heart. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to see that he is your righteousness. You are not your righteousness. So 
Number one, who you don't want to be. That's the beginning of verse 19. Number two, who you do want to be. And then number three, who you'd better be. How do you relate to the law? This is how you better relate to the law. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're thinking like a law keeper, if you're thinking like a Pharisee, this is terrifying. It's terrifying news. So I've got to do better. I've got to do more. I've got to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. I've got to, got to reach some higher level. I've got to be Saul who became Paul or he became the Pharisee of the Pharisees, trained under Gamaliel, a master law keeper. I've got to be that to enter the kingdom of God. This is terrifying to me. But that wasn't Jesus' point at all. Exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is trading in the silly putty of hypocritical living where knowledge puffs up, where you think you're better than other people. You're trading all that in and you're looking at it like Paul through the optics of the gospel and you say, that's rubbish, that's scubalon, that's dung. That's what he said in Philippians chapter three. All my righteousness is as dung. I traded it all in as wrong and hypocrisy and it's a disaster. Philippians 3.8, Paul called it rubbish, superficial righteousness. That's relaxing the law. So we need to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees by not looking at the law in terms of something we can do more and more, but where we go deeper and deeper in our reliance upon the grace of the gospel. Now, how do we get there? Again, the Beatitudes ladder that we've climbed over several weeks where we're poor in spirit, where we realize that we need to be meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mourning over our sins, saying, my righteousness is is as filthy rags. We are Isaiah in Isaiah 6, looking at the vision of Jesus' holiness and saying, you are the fulfillment of everything. Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I've spent time with unclean people. Forgive me of that. I repent of that. At salvation, you repent and you become a Christian, but through sanctification, you keep coming back to that and saying, I can't do it. I relinquish my rights of righteousness and I I claim only the righteousness that comes through Christ alone. That's Christianity. That's where you say Jesus is the fulfillment of, of it all. And that means something to me because that's the foundation for me, clinging to Christ alone and his righteousness to save me. And to sanctify me. This is the beatitude life. You're either bewitched under the legalism spell where you think you can obey God enough to clean your conscience. Or you come to the end of yourself and say, I need to be this person of the beatitudes. Well, what about following the law? What about obedience? What does it look like to obey God? Well, the whole Sermon on the Mount is a call to obedience. But it's a call to obedience from the heart. The issue of anger and murder, the issue of immorality and adultery, all these things are to be avoided, to be repented of. You're to obey the commands of Scripture, but you're to obey through the eyes of faith, through the heart of humility that says, I can't do it in my own strength. I'm totally relying upon you. And so the Old Testament Life is actually brought forward into New Testament Christian living in the Sermon on the Mount. It's obeyed through life by the Holy Spirit. 
That's it. For unless your righteousness exceeds, that's the exceeding righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that we're relying upon. It's that of the scribes and Pharisees. You'll never enter the kingdom of God. If you aren't a true believer, where your heart has been changed to want to obey God's word, then you will not see the kingdom of God. Let me give you a few practical points to take home um, for this morning on a sermon like this. Number one, read your Old Testament as Christian scripture. Read the Old Testament through the eyes of the gospel. Think about it in terms of um, loving God. Remember Psalm 119, 97? David said, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. When you read the, the commandments, like the Ten Commandments, read them in terms of God's holiness. Um, when you read in terms of the sacrificial system, read it in terms of how God has forgiven you all of your sins by the Lamb of God. He's cleansed your conscience by the blood of Jesus that cleanses you from all sin. When you read about an Old Testament priest, think about the high priest who loves you. When you read about Israel being um, rescued from Egypt, think about your own rescue. You were bought with a price. You were on the slave market of sin. You've been redeemed. You've been adopted. When you think about Gentiles being grafted into Israel's kingdom program, we are part of that ingrafting. When you think of all the prophecies and predictions that are fulfilled that we talked about in Matthew chapters one through four, only four chapters. Think about all those fulfillments that were listed there. Just rejoice in the fact that it's all about Jesus and he truly is your king. He's not just the king of the universe. He's the king of your life. Read, read the Old Testament that way. Look for the symbols and types of Christ that point to him and salvation and the grace alone gospel that's found in the Abrahamic covenant. Point two, declare war on performance-based Christianity. Real Christianity is diametrically opposed to legalism. Whenever I hear someone suggest something for me to do that's legalistic, it suffocates me. I, I literally... You know, I've been in the faith since I was 17. I'm 48 years old, whatever that means. Um, I literally feel it in my spirit when people say, do more instead of believe more. Trust more. Faith is instrumental. It's not a work. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are we saved through, instrumentally through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a free gift, right? It's the gift of God regenerating our hearts. He changes us to be able to rely upon him. And through that reliance where he has worked this in our heart to be able to do it, that's where we grow. Trust in the gospel. Trust more in Christ and what he's done. Ask yourself this question. Do I really believe that by doing more, I'm more pleasing to God? That should be a regular question that you should ask yourself. Do I really believe that by serving more, by giving more, by reading my Bible more, by praying more, that I'm more right with God? If the answer in your mind is yes, then you need to examine your heart in terms of legalism. The reason that we pray more, the reason that we study God's word, the reason that we do these things is because God has changed our heart and because he's given us the grace and the power to want to do those things. And the reason we serve, it's not merit-based serving. We serve out of the overflow of our love for Christ. And that very subtle difference is the difference between legalism 
and trusting the Lord. This is either a rule book or this is revelation. And this shows us Christ and gives us the drive to want to follow him by the power of the Holy Spirit.